And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Gentlemen, it is another busy broadcast day. We are live from the bunker, coming to you from deep beneath world headquarters. This is the super secret underground bunker. Sponsored by 9020. Ah. <laughs> uh, Welcome to the program, everybody. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. Glad to have you with us. Those of you who are with us live, you can participate in the chat. If you're not with us live, if you're watching in replay, uh, you can uh, leave a comment. As always, the email address is open for business, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. Of course, all of the social medias and the Discord. And we'll give a shout-out to people who are listening to this as a podcast. We have people around the world who are listening to this program. Good to have all of you with us. (coughs) All right, coming up in the second hour, David Levine will be here to talk about stuff and things. In the meanwhile, we've got quite a bit of stuff to talk about, so we're going to get to it because that's what we do here, right? First of all, here's something we've got to do. I gotta, I gotta do this thing because this is going to be a regular thing. Everybody, say hi, Todd. Hi, hi Todd. Todd. Yay! All right, everybody's got a hi, Todd. Uh, by the way, you can you can record your own Hi Todd and send it to us by email if you so desire. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Weatherman WDW Pro's channel was restored this morning. I saw that. Congratulations to him. Good to see uh, YouTube occasionally having some some uh, moments of clarity. How is the sound, by the way? Because we had some issues yesterday. I want to make sure that we don't have anything because it looks like it looks like I'm having some low audio. My winky blinkies are kind of not exactly where they were yesterday. That that could just be me. I don't know. It's probably I'm getting old. Anyway, all right. Everybody says good so far. And let me say hi to everybody in the chat. Cam's here. Weatherman's here. Keely's here. Gojira76 is here. Good to see all of you uh, with us. And uh, let's do a couple of things. Just wanted to uh, give you a programming note first. This is not for my channel. Gothic Therapy... Uh, has a YouTube channel, Master of the TDS and, and uh, Writing Raven, uh, doing a thing over there. They do a lot of, of psychological analysis, uh, analysis, counseling type of things. And they have a video that's going to drop today uh, at 2 p.m. Pacific, specifically revealing 
Disney's Bot Army. Apparently, uh, uh, they've been doing some research over there, and they have they have an expose on the Mouse House using bots for various different things. And this is not a surprise. Remember, back in November, we had uh, HBO uh, and and Warner Brothers and and that set <coughs> getting caught. Uh, using bots and telling their employees to set up false accounts and and that sort of thing in order to go after the trolls and stir up controversy. So uh, that is nothing new. So Gothic Therapy is the channel where that will show up. And uh, all you got to do is just hit Gothic Therapy and you will see uh, their channel uh, there. Meanwhile, speaking of controversy... Speaking of controversy, over at sci-fi for me.com, I have just, I have I have posted my my article. <coughs> I posted it yes yesterday morning yesterday. The uh, Hugo Awards, the the latest in a long string of controversies regarding the Hugo Awards and the censorship that took place uh, with regard to uh, the Communist Chinese Party. So go check that out. It is the lead article over at sci-fi for me.com and it's been pointed out to me and I and I remember reading about this in my research and I I didn't I didn't include it in the article and I probably should have because a couple of different people have pointed it out now not only were the American and Canadian administrators of Hugo uh, looking at various different things and what can we what can we censor to to appease the the Communist Chinese Party, but also the the Chinese counterparts, the other members of the Hugo Administrators Committee, were removing Chinese works, works that were published in China. So the Americans and the Canadians were looking at Western publications. The Chinese administrators. We're looking at Chinese entries and removing a whole lot of them, apparently. So that's, an, in addition to everything else that we've found out, that's come out. And Mary Robinette Kowal over on Blue Sky is talking about how Dave McCarty, who was in charge of the Hugo tabulations and whatnot, and he has since resigned, but he apparently set up some software in order to tabulate this stuff, proprietary software, he says, because he wrote, I guess he wrote the code, and he's not letting anybody see it. So there's no transparency in the process of tabulating the votes for the Hugo Awards, and that has caused some additional consternation. We're gonna be, I think we're going to be talking about this on Friday. I'm trying to set up a panel for Friday to talk about the Hugo debacle. And I think we're going to learn more. I'm pretty sure. I don't think we're done with this yet. So if anybody is interested in what's going on with the Hugos, we will continue to uh, monitor that. <sighs> because it's just dumb stuff, right? Do I sound okay? Because my, I'm, looking at my, I'm looking at my LEDs, my winky blinkies, and I'm listening to it in my in my headphones here, and it sounds like I'm not at the same level that I usually am. So I I don't know. I'm I'm just getting paranoid because that cable failed yesterday for no reason at all. Yeah, weatherman, I smell stuffing. I don't. 
I don't think it's so much stuffing the ballots as it is, well, the, they have been exposed, uh, eliminating and rendering ineligible certain works that were nominated for Hugo's that come from either uh, authors who are persona non grata in Chinese communist, in communist China, <coughs> or they're, I don't know, um, non-binary, uh, I, I mean, there are various different things as far as identity stuff and, and that sort of thing. So in addition to mentioning things like Tibet or Taiwan or anything that's critical of China, the, 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 the Hugo administrators were removing such works prior, dur well, during the voting process in order to eliminate anything that would offend the sensibilities of the Chinese Communist Party. And apparently they were doing this preemptively, but there's some indication that Dave McCarty might have been in communication with somebody for quote-unquote guidelines. And we don't know who he's talking to on that front. There may have been government interference in this, or maybe not. Uh, and again, as much as I hate to quote File 770, they have a rather extensive article on this. And at one point, and I've, I've documented it in my article, at one point there was a post on social media from a government agency claiming to have been involved in the censorship of various uh, Worldcon uh, items. So this is still ongoing. And there's going to be, I think there's going to be a reckoning. Um, but the irony, the irony is that you have all of this pearl clutching and boohooing over censorship of works because of politics. And I just sit there and I think, yeah, hey, I wonder what Larry Korea and Brad Torgerson think of all this. Larry Korea is having a ball. He is he is laughing to the, all the way to the bank on this. Uh, he is he's he's looking at this. He's like, I'm I'm watching all of this with some amusement because this is exactly what they did in 2015 and in 2014 and in 2016. And 2013, I mean, 2015 was the peak. Uh, 2015 was the scorched earth, no awards ceremony. But, you know, it's been going on for a while. And for them to start boohooing about it now, all I got to say is what goes around comes around, baby, because you, you, you did this to yourselves and everybody sits there and goes, do we really want to have a Worldcon in China? Why not? You're of the same sensibility. For the most part. Weatherman says my little low in the volume. I, you know, I, I, I keep thinking that it is. Because we've got these, we've got these blinkies here. I've got. Let me show you because this, this is a, this is a thing, where if I'm, if I'm doing this, my levels here, my audio levels. You see this little blinky light here. This should be up in the yellow just slightly, and it's not. 
And I don't know if it's the cable. Mrs. Boss, why don't you say something for me over there? I just I'm 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 thinking that something's something's off. Just a little bit. Hello. Yeah. It's off. Well, something. Something. Well, you're very low because you're not. I'm talking into the mic. All right. I'm going to have to actually run some diagnostics here, folks. Not to, not right now. I'm not going to do it in the middle of a show. <coughs> but I will, uh, I will be looking at this. As we go. All right. Uh, some other award stuff. Let me let me do this. This is a follow up on the BAFTAs. Apparently there was somebody on stage who wasn't supposed to be. Hollywood reporter BAFTA says security removed prankster who joined Oppenheimer's team on stage. <laughs> we are taking this very seriously. They said the BAFTAs have responded to reports that a social media prankster joined the Oppenheimer team on stage as they accepted the best film prize at Sunday's awards. The man, whom the British Academy did not name, was removed by security after he took the stage with Oppenheimer writer-director-producer Christopher Nolan, producers Emma Thomas and Charles Roven, and actor Killian Murphy. We are taking this very seriously and don't wish to grant him any publicity by commenting further, a spokesperson for BAFTA added in a statement. The man wearing a dark suit and black hat could be seen standing behind Thomas as she delivered her acceptance speech alongside Nolan and Murphy. Viewers may have thought he was affiliated with the film as he appeared to take the stage as Thomas urged more of the Oppenheimer team to join her on stage. <coughs> Where are you? Come on, all of you, Thomas said, in part, as the man could be seen walking up the steps. Uh, after her speech, the man appeared to tuck something under his arm and clap before walking off stage with the filmmakers. Uh, presenter Michael J. Fox and host David Tennant were also on stage when the incident took place, yet no one seemed to interact with the crasher. The prankster is reportedly a YouTuber who has also crashed the Brit Awards and the FIFA Balloon d'Or Awards in France. Ballon. Ballon d'Or Awards in France. Oppenheimer is a big winner at BAFTA. So, this continues to be a dumb, stupid thing that people are doing. Now, it's, it's not any different from the streakers at the ball game or what was her name that always ran out? Uh, the Kissing Bandit. She always ran out at the baseball games. Uh, I, I, those of you who are of an age, you'll remember what was her name. Anyway, you have you have this kind of stuff happen, but at the same time, now you've got these YouTubers that are out there pulling these pranks, and somebody's gonna get shot. I'm surprised they haven't already. There's been a couple of them that have gotten close, because this kind of thing is like, you know breaking into houses and and spoofing people and getting up in their face and confronting them and all for the gag to put it on YouTube or TikTok or wherever and they're doing it they're doing it on a lark and they think they're going to get exposure they think they're going to get audience and traffic and yeah, they're doing it for clicks and this is going to get somebody killed. 
yeah, influ- influencers, influencers. What are you influencing exactly? Idiocracy? Is that the word you're going for? Something like that. This is just not the way to do it, folks. I don't know. I hate to say it, though. Yes? Maybe it needs to happen to maybe stop the rest of them. Just saying. Maybe. I mean... I mean, I don't want to be that person, but... First of all, I hate, I mean, it's like there are so many words out there we, you can't use because it'll trigger someone's thought process, whether it sets them off or thinks you're talking about a certain thing yeah. or whatever. It's like, you know, kids drawing certain things. You can't just enjoy them anymore. And influencers is one of those words. And you've got these people who sit there and think they can get something. Like you said, they're doing it for click. They're no worse than the clickbait crap that we get for, you know, news stories online. Well, it's like Kim says, there's consequences to this. There are consequences. The problem is, and I hate to be the person to say that, maybe a consequence needs to happen to one of these idiots. Well, More than just falling off a cliff. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe business boss has thoughts today. Should, I, I should I should let you have an hour at some point. Um, but we got to we got to see uh, if it's going to. Do be... you really trust me? I well, it I guess it depends on how you start your day. <laughs> right? It depends on what subjects I go off on. Well, that's true too. All right, so because you heard me earlier. Uh huh. I did. All right. So. <laughs> So the other thing, uh, you know, you talk about you know, this stuff with people showing up the awards and people showing. Here's here's this thing. I want to circle back to this because somebody asked a very pointed question about this. Uh, Zendaya's appearance at the red carpet premiere for Dune Part Two. Those of you who have seen this, where she's dressed kind of like C three PO in this, in this outfit here. Which is somewhat revealing <laughs> in certain spots. Because yes. it's it's revealable on both sides. Yes. And this, I mean, she's, in the stuff that you normally see her in, she's got a fantastic figure, but this does nothing but her, for her butt. No, no. I'm just doesn't. saying. Uh, by the way, Weatherman says, two thumbs up for Mindy Rants. <laughs> We may have to may have to do something about this. So here's here's this. Here's my here's my my question I want to ask. Because this these photos have made it all around the internet. And here's an article here from Comic Sans. Zenzaya showed up to the Dune Part 2 premiere looking like C3PO and fans are living for it. Now, basically what this does is this is collecting and it's aggregating a bunch of different social media posts standing for Zendaya, and she's, oh, you know, doing this whole Yas Queen stuff for for her outfit. So, can, can, that, can that give us the opportunity then 
to stop complaining when video games like Stellar Blade give us a character that's got a nice rear end? I mean, really, it, it, they're, the hypocrisy and the double standards on, on the part of some people is absolutely ludicrous. And then you get, you know, the the developers over at Stellar Blade is like, well, yeah, you're going to be behind her all the time. We're going to take extra time to make sure her backside looks good. I mean, <laughs> this is just, this is the way you do it. That makes sense. But if if we if we're okay with this as a as a as an actual real life in person actual thing, then we should be okay with video game characters and cartoon characters and movie characters dressed attractively, provocative provocatively. I mean, come on. Give me a break. I just... Uh, uh. Speaking of which, we have our first poster for Borderlands, the movie adapting the video game. We've got a couple of photographs here as well of the cast, which includes uh, Kate Blanchett and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis there. And I gotta say, Kate, Kate looks pretty good as Lilith. And everybody's excited. It looks like we're going to get a trailer tomorrow. So, something to look forward to there. We're going to get a Borderlands trailer. <coughs> Gojera says, The video game is bad because we don't like it. And Zendaya is good because it's hot couture. But mostly reasons. <laughs> That's exactly right, Gojira. You nailed it right there. We like what we like because we like it, and it's okay because we like it. And and if there's something we don't like, it's 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 a bad thing, and you shouldn't like it either. Because if you like it, you're a bad person. It's bandwagon mentality. It's 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 in crowd. You want to be you want to be socially accepted. So get get on board. Or we'll come after you. <clears throat> I mean, they're still they're still trying to railroad Johnny Depp and his fans. Uh, apparently, BBC or somebody over in the UK has come up with some new new special that talks about how social media and whatnot got weaponized against Amber Heard and ruined her case for it. And we're like, really? How how long are we going to take this? How long are we going to sit there? And put up with this crap. Because the trial's over. She lost. Mostly. I mean, Depp didn't win 100%. But if you want to sit there and a year later, two years later, five years later, try to relitigate this thing in the social media sphere, more power to you, but you're, you're wasting your time and energy on things. You could be doing better things with that. I'm just saying. Uh, it just it, it boggles my mind the amount of space that that is occupied in people's heads over these things that have absolutely no direct impact on their lives. I I I followed kind of sort of 
the trial. I watched every now and again, and you know, I saw that. And I'm and I'm expecting the Gina Carano lawsuit against Disney to go kind of the same way. By the way, did you see Drunk 3PO's video? He was in Vancouver for Fan Expo. He's up there as as Gina's uh, handler, plus one. And he went out because they had a protest planned. They went up there and we're going to we're going to protest Van uh, Fan Fan Expo having Gina as a guest because she's transphobic, she's homophobic, she's a terrible person. And it took Jay a while to find the protest and apparently it was all of four people. It was four or five people standing on a street corner and they were holding their signs, but they weren't doing but the signs were generic. Fan Expo needs to be a safe space type thing. There wasn't anything specific against Gina. And I get I guess they were just taking a taking an opportunity to make a make a statement or something. I don't know. But <laughs> it was it was it was kind of sad looking. It was rather pathetic. I almost 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 feel sorry for these people because they don't have anything better to do with their lives. They need to have a creative, productive, constructive hobby. Something that makes them feel better about themselves and doesn't do harm to others. I don't know. I'm just, just, I'm just yeah, saying. Too much. Well, I mean... <clears throat> you, have these, you have these situations where you have actors who become targets of the cancel cult for various different reasons. Among them, let's try to be good people to each other. I mean, then you have, then you have people like, like Henry Cavill, for example, who became uh, the, the subject of, of a lot of different complaints online because of, of how he approached The Witcher. And he sits there and says, you know what? We should probably be doing stuff that's kind of faithful to the source material. And they're like, how dare you? Meanwhile, Madam Web collapses. I mean, there, I, there is an outside the galaxy Urt cloud possibility of a sequel. But I don't think we're going to get a sequel. It, it depends on the finances. It depends on how the money was structured, how it got spent, and what went with, what went where compared to how much they pull in from the box office. Because if they only made this for $80 million and they only spent $60 million on marketing, that's 140 And if they pulled however much from Pepsi for product placement, they might actually be able to break even. We talked about this yesterday. <coughs> but in the meantime, you have Sydney Sweeney over here doing an interview and talking about this. And when she got cast, she went and started doing her homework. And she started doing the research and said, hey, um, my character drops in from the top upside down and does this whole aerialist. I mean, she's, she's actually doing her homework and she says, I want to do this. I want, she wants to do stuff that's faithful to the character. These are the people you listen to 
when you're when you're casting and when you're when you're working on these projects and you get these people that sit there and say, hey, you know what? This character in episode in in issue one hundred and fifty six of volume three back in nineteen seventy seven did this. I want to do that. This is the kind of stuff that you do. She sat there and she said, I want to do this. Because it's what the character does in the comic book. What a novel idea. Sydney Sweeney continues to impress me. Just from the standpoint of her approach. I haven't seen her. I, I don't think I've even seen anything that she's done acting wise. But from a from a, a marketing standpoint, from just just what I'm reading about how she is. I don't know. By the way, um, anyone but you is a sleeper hit, is what they're calling it now. And I didn't realize, apparently, it's based on a Shakespeare. It's a. Uh, <laughs> it basically takes two characters, two side characters from, I think, Much Ado About Nothing. And puts them in the front of the story, and I guess this is this is kind of very loosely based on characters in Shakespeare. So I don't know. There we go. But see, there's a reason why people are getting turned off by productions that are not faithful to the source material. It's like this is not what I signed up for. You you tell me that we're going to get a She-Hulk. TV series, and I would like to see She-Hulk. <coughs> you tell me you were going to get a Daredevil series, I'd like to see Daredevil. You tell me we're going to get Superman, I want to see Superman. I don't want to see the Kryptonian Kal-El. I want to see Superman. You're giving me a Battlestar Galactica reboot, it better look like Battlestar Galactica. Doctor Who, Star Trek, they all have a certain set of expectations that fans have based on the history of the product. And if you don't understand that, then you fail, and you don't make money, and your stock price dips, and you end up in a proxy war with people who sit there and say, you know, your business needs to make money for the shareholders. <clears throat> Film Threat had an interesting series of articles. I think Alan Ng over there doing the doing basically a, an analysis of when Disney started going off the rails, and he pins it all the way back to the dismissal of John Lasseter at Pixar. And from there forward seems to be uh, Disney going completely off the rails and it's and fans fans respond to this stuff they understand this they're a little bit more savvy now than they used to be but a lot of it's because there's so much stuff out there online i can look up all of this behind the scenes stuff and all of these interviews and these press junkets and red carpet things or whatever and there is absolutely no reason why you should make something that isn't faithful to your source material. 
None whatsoever. If you're going to do an adaptation, there is an inherent amount of expectation that goes with that. We're going to do Cowboy Bebop. Okay, I want it to look like the anime. We're going to do Last Airbender. Okay, I want it to look like the comic. I want it to look like the, the, the cartoon. We're going to do a new James Bond movie. It better be James Bond. There's a certain set of expectations that come with all of these things that have a history. Now, if you want to change it so it's something brand new, then do something brand new. Otherwise, we're going to continue having the audience, especially the older ones among us, going back to stuff we've already seen before. And it's becoming a thing that people are noticing. Here's a headline from The Hill. The top streamed shows are almost all old. The most streamed show last year wasn't the latest Netflix reality TV show craze, nor was it the highly anticipated final season of Succession or the debut of The Last of Us. According to Nielsen... The most minutes last year, more than 57 billion, were spent watching Suits, a legal drama that premiered 12 years prior. The show, which is available to stream on Netflix and Peacock, stars the former actress Meghan Markle, now the Duchess of Sussex, and likely has her to thank for its second life, but Suits isn't the exception. Old shows, which debuted over a decade ago, dominated the top streamed list of 2023. Several of the programs, including Suits, Gilmore Girls, and Friends, have been off the air for years. All right, so here's the top 10, according to Nielsen, the most streamed shows of 2023. <clears throat> no 9020. Suits, Bluey, NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, Coco Melon, the Big Bang Theory, Gilmore Girls, Friends, Heartland, and Supernatural. None of them, uh, 2018 is the youngest of these shows. Five years old. There's a reason for this, folks. It's because, the, it's because these shows weren't preaching at us. These shows weren't lecturing us. They were trying to entertain us. Maybe, maybe the subtext is there to make you think, hey, here's something, here's an idea. But these shows weren't lecturing you. It's comfort food, almost. <clears throat> now, this article is citing the strikes. With Hollywood, because there's nothing new to watch, so let's watch some old stuff. But I think it's more than that. It's not just the fact that the new stuff has been delayed. It's the fact that the new stuff is crap. And, and, and this kind of thing will continue as long as Hollywood sits there and says... And shake their finger at us. Stop doing that. Just give us something that we can enjoy. 
give us something. And if it's part of a franchise, if it's part of a thing that has history, then you have to, at some level, maybe you don't have to be slave to it, but you have to honor and respect the history of what's come before. Looking at you, Chris Chibnall. See Dave and Matuine joining us in the chat. Good to see you two coming in. Here's a new one here. Blade 2099. Blade Runner 2099. <laughs> Blade 2099 would be a completely different thing. Blade Runner 2099. Jonathan Van Tulliken set to direct as the Amazon series gears up for production in new location. This is Deadline. Coming off directing and executive producing the first two episodes of FX's Shogun, Jonathan Van Tulliken has been tapped to direct and executive produce the first two episodes of another high-profile limited series, Prime Video's Blade Runner 2099. Tulliken replaces Jeremy Podeswa, who was originally set to direct the first episodes but had to step away due to scheduling conflicts, as the Blade Runner 2099 production schedule was altered by the WGA strike. The series was originally slated to film in Belfast last summer. In May, a couple of weeks into the writer's strike, it was revealed that due to the work stoppage, production on the show was delayed, likely until spring 2024. Northern Ireland screen said at the time the project had been prepping on the ground in Belfast for many months. In October, it was reported that Blade, Blade Runner 2099 was moving away. That's such an awkward title. Blade Runner 2099. <clears throat> it's hard to say. In October, it was reported that Blade Runner 2099 was moving away from Belfast. Series studio Alcon has since set up production in Prague in the Czech Republic which has been attracting major sci-fi streaming series, including Apple TV's Foundation. Not only not only that one, not only Foundation, but have you guys been seeing any of the video diaries coming out of Daily Wire's uh, King Arthur production, the Pendragon Cycle? Man, this stuff looks really good. Have you have, have I shown you any of this stuff, Mrs. Boss? They week week number seven or eight. They were in Italy, and they were shooting in a bull arena. And they were shooting practical, real, not CG, Dragon? real bulls and people jumping over them. No dragons. Not yet. <clears throat> this is based on a series of books, and Jeremy Boring over at Daily Wire has just been really, really, really hot to trot on, on adapting this stuff. And the production value on this looks... Really impressive. It is a it's a different retelling of the Arthurian legends. There's some Atlantis connections in there. There's new languages they've created. There, I mean, the production looks really lush, but they've shot a lot of stuff in the Czech Republic, and, and I think they've been in Prague around there. Um, and there this it, this looks really impressive if the acting and the if the writing and the acting is is as impressive as what i'm seeing as far as production value goes this thing's going to be ginormously great we'll see i don't know i haven't read the books 
So I don't have a particular level of expectation, but this thing, if it, if it delivers the goods, <coughs> they should not keep it behind a paywall. They should license it to, to put it somewhere. As, see, because that's the thing. That's the other thing. Because if it's coming from the Daily Wire, and if it's behind the Daily Wire paywall, then you have a better chance for people to poo-poo it and sit there and go, oh, well, it's just a Daily Wire. <laughs> but if you license it out, put it on Amazon Prime, or put it on Netflix, or put it someplace else, there's less chance that people are going to automatically assume, well, this is just Republican propaganda. It's not. It looks gorgeous. I, I mean, and some of the locations where they're shooting this stuff, uh, on the one hand, I'm very, very impressed and I'm very jealous. On the other hand, I'm glad I'm not the one lugging all this equipment up the hill because you can't get there with a car. I mean, they're in some remote locations. And it looks it looks fantastic. I'm I am actually looking forward to this. <clears throat> but Blade Runner 2099 is another example of these kind of franchise things, sequels, prequels, requels, or whatever. And if you don't get it right, you could ruin the entire franchise. You could ruin all of the chances anybody has of doing anything else. Madam Web is not likely to get a sequel. Morbius, not a sequel. I saw a couple of people that were doing this. They were doing a reaction just coming out of the theater for Madam Web, and they said, I don't ever want to hear anybody saying anything about Waterworld again. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> don't talk to me about Waterworld. I just saw Madam Web. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen Madam Web yet. We haven't seen it. <laughs> but that's a heck of a comparison. It's I mean, saying it's worse than Morbius, that's one thing. But saying that it's worse than Waterworld? I mean, that's a whole new level, right? Uh Gojira saw Waterworld in the theaters. Uh, poor Madam Web. <laughs> yeah, de nothing like having to lug 50 feet of G&E feeder cable up a hill. I, you know it, man. I, e even, even hauling a bunch of uh, fiber optic cable up to the top of the stadium is enough for me. I, I mean, the 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 thousand feet. Cables, the thousand feet cable runs that are ginormous, and you got to sling them over your shoulder, and you got to haul them up the stairs, and then you got to then you got to take them back down. Which which place has the loadout or whatever where you have to push it up the hill, and you pray to God the thing <laughs> doesn't go flying after you? One of the places you've worked downtown. Uh, um, yeah, there's a it's the music hall downtown. Yeah, it's got a, 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 that ramp on the loading dock has something like a 60 degree incline. It's ridiculously steep. Um, well, the other, and you know, down at University of Missouri and Columbia, they've got a, they've got a hill that, that treacherous as well. 
I was like, wait a minute. I don't want to push this thing up there. Give me six other people and we'll make it halfway. <laughs> it's crazy. But some of this stuff gets gets built before they start thinking about all of this stuff. <clears throat> or it's been around for so long that, you know, doing things the way we always did them is no longer no longer a thing. I don't know. It's going to be uh it's one of those things. Technology. You got to love technology, right? Another player in the streaming space since we're talking about Netflix and Amazon Prime and whatnot, Walmart. <clears throat> this is deadline. Walmart Walmart acquires smart TV firm Vizio for $2.3 billion, altering the streaming ad landscape. I, I don't know what I think about this. <clears throat> Retail giant Walmart is acquiring smart TV maker Vizio for $2.3 billion in a deal that will alter the streaming advertising landscape. Well, that's what you just said in your headline. While Vizio is a leading manufacturer of televisions rivaling Samsung for supremacy in North America, Walmart is not mainly interested in its hardware business, however. Instead, it has coveted Vizio's SmartCast operating system, which has 18 million active accounts to be targeted by advertisers. With Amazon knitting together... Okay, hang on. Let me interrupt myself here. This is another example of you being the product. Target is not interested in the technology of the TV. <clears throat> Target is interested in the technology that delivers you... To them for the advertising. <sighs> Continuing with Amazon knitting together e commerce and streaming ads with increasing potency, Walmart identified an opportunity in Vizio to counterattack. Walmart has had phases of interest in the U.S. media business, selling its voodoo streaming subsidiary to NBC Universal's Fandango in 2020 after a 10-year run. Given that Walmart is a top retailer of smart TVs, integrating Vizio should be a more streamlined process than building out voodoo. It also sends a shot across the bow of Roku, whose interface is in one-third of all smart TVs in North America. The company will now face another scaled competitor for streaming ad dollars. Shares in Roku which plunged 24% last Friday in the wake of a mixed quarterly earnings report, slid another 5% in pre-market trading today on the Walmart Vizio News. So, Walmart, not Target, I misspoke earlier. Walmart has you as a target. Walmart, wait, where do they get that much money to spend on this crap? I mean... If I had a tenth of a percent of that, I could build out such a fantastic studio. But I have a nice studio here anyway. I do. It's just 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 me in the basement. Just me in the basement. But to be clear, it's my basement, not my mother's basement. Let's be clear about that. Right. <laughs> <coughs> That's an important distinction to make. This is true. It's my basement. <laughs> it's my basement, not my mother's basement. 
showered. I am, and I had my breakfast, and I had my coffee, and everything. I am, I am, I am running today on waffles and spite. That's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, let's see here. I just want to double check something here. Yeah, okay, all right. Bum, bum. Okay. <coughs> Matt Tween says so. No more Vizio sales in competitor stores. That'll lead to SK. Uh, that'll lead to skew rationalization and fewer models to choose from. Well. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Vizio will be sold only in Walmart. What if it's not? Because if it's if it's the Vizio brand that's owned by Walmart, then I I could see uh, Vizio being sold at other places, and Walmart still Walmart kind of sits in the background and just gets a share of the market that they didn't have before. Maybe. Vizio, brought to you by Walmart. Being sold in Target? Sure, I can see it. <coughs> now, the Target might not decide to carry it. Who knows? Let the streaming wars continue. Meanwhile, here's a story that I did not expect. But again, remember my remember my bingo card. But of course. <clears throat> so normally when you're talking you know we've talked Disney before normally when you talk about the Disney kids the you know pe- people like uh, uh, Miley Cyrus and Selena Gomez and Christine Car- Carlson Carlson Car- Christine Carlson Romano let me say that six times fast yeah the, usually they're triple threats actors singers dancers right and they end up going on to do other things, acting and singing and performing and whatnot. Or, yeah, or the other <coughs> stuff you're not supposed to watch. But here's one that I didn't expect to see. This is The Hollywood Reporter. Bridget Mendler took a different path. Former Disney star Bridget Mendler launches Outer Space Communication Startup. Yeah. Okay, let's see what this is about. (coughs) Former Disney Channel star Bridget Mendler is now a CEO. The actress who rose to fame for her roles in Disney's Good Luck Charlie and Wizards of Waverly Place is now a founder and CEO of the Los Angeles-based startup Northwood Space. Mendler founded Northwood along with her husband Griffin Cleverly and engineer Sharia Luthra in October 2023, the former actress announced on Twixer on Monday that the organization has now received $6.3 million in funding. Quote, we have our sights on building a data highway between Earth and space, she wrote. We are designing shared ground infrastructure from first principles to expand access to space. We have a lot of work ahead of us, but that's the fun part. Per its website, the organization's mission is to build a data highway between Earth and space. It goes on to say, to meet the needs of today's space industry, the one-lane rickety road for space data needs to adapt to a 10-lane highway routing continuous traffic across the globe. 
So this is a this is going to be kind of like uh, an expansion on satellite communication type stuff. You know, getting getting data from the ground into space and back to the ground somewhere else. But what's interesting in this <clears throat> is her background. It says here, following years of success as an actress and singer as a teenager and young adult, Mendler graduated from University of Southern California in 2016. She then received a master's and doctorate of philosophy from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, known colloquially for all of us as MIT, which is not chump change. Uh, and then a doctorate of law from Harvard Law School in 2024. While in school, she spent time at the Federal Communication Commission's New Space Bureau, where she told CNBC this week that she completely fell in love with space law. <laughs> um, so, okay, so Bridget Mendler has gone from Disney kid to space lawyer communications guru. Who do, yeah, whether weatherman, it could be a, a Starlink competitor, maybe. Either that or or they they work on a piece that makes Starlink work better or work different. Maybe it's an expansion or or a an ancillary piece, an accessory or something. That's that's uh, that's pretty impressive. She needs Winnie on her team. Wait, who? Um, uh, what's her name? Who? What? Uh, from uh, Wonder Years. Oh, Danica McKellar. She needs to get on board with this. That you know, that's not a bad idea. That uh, that would be an interesting partnership. Um, yeah, because somebody's gonna have to do the math. I yeah, that would be that would be an interesting mix of things. I would think, possibly. Go to Twixer. Go to Twixer. Um, speaking of which, um, in the in all of this dust up over the Hugo Awards, I have run across a number of authors who are of a particular mindset who have abandoned Twitter in favor of this other uh, this other one called Blue Sky. <coughs> And I'm wondering if we I'm wondering if we need to look at doing some kind of a blue sky account. I don't know. I don't I know, I know, I know, I know. Most of these other accounts I'm just doing a copy paste anyway. I'm not doing anything really active on any of those things. But I'm sitting there thinking, well, if everybody if all of these authors are no place else on social media, and if they're posting stuff about their projects, like new books coming out or new interviews or whatnot, maybe we have to do it. I don't know. I just, I'm not sure. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Until you unsubscribe in a sudden but inevitable betrayal. Hi, everyone. Jason Hunt here, taking a moment to say thank you for listening to this program on the podcast player of your choice and to invite you to watch the show as it unfolds live on our various video platforms. Not only will you get to see the visual references we have, but you also have a chance to interact with us through the chat widget and during the open line hour when you can call in and be part of the show. 
Join us live from the bunker Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. All right. Todd holding the fort down for us. Thank you very much, Todd. All right. So, um... Here we go. David Levine is standing by in the green room. So let us do this here. Bring him in so we can talk. He is the author of a number of different books. Hugo and Nebula is uh, in his resume. He has been here before. This is actually his third time to be with us. David Levine joins us to talk about the new stuff. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, it's good to have you back. It's been way too long. <laughs> so, uh, where do you want to start? We've got the new the new Arabella of Mars series that's uh, that's coming out. It's not new books; they're new editions of the books. Right. You've got the Kuiper the Kuiper Belt job. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course, how about them Hugos? We could talk about the Hugos, but. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. I think talking about your work is probably probably less uh, less rife with 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 feelings and and concerns or something. That's was such a mess. But anyway, mm. oh, oh the current the current Hugo's oh Lord oh yes yeah yeah wow that is <laughs> I don't know I don't know of uh, the people who the people who made those extremely bad decisions are people who have done this work before and yeah. i i find the whole thing incomprehensible um that i what i what i would say in an attempt to understand what's happening is that authoritarianism works by causing people to self-censor yeah uh, it's not so much that they actually come and bust down your door um, and and take it, you know, and rip your typewriter out of your hands, but that the one thing about authoritarianism is that the lines about what you can do and what you cannot do in an authoritarian society are always very fuzzy, and this is deliberate. Um, that they they will set things up so that, um, for example, they may they may set things up so that just about everything is illegal. Mm -hmm. um, and only not, I, I mean, obviously, if they make everything illegal, then they can't prosecute everybody. But anybody is capable of being prosecuted. And therefore, everybody has to watch their back at all times. Yeah. Keeping the population scared is a way that authoritarian societies keep them under control. So what I see here is people, and in this case, unfortunately, it was not even the Chinese fans. It was the Western fans who were mostly running the Hugos who did that thing of by not knowing what might get them into trouble, they chose to self-censor. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, their choice to self-censor caused people who should by all rights have been on the ballot to be removed from the ballot. And this was done, you know, this was done single-handedly in a in a secret a secretive manner that they refused to explain or defend after the fact. Um, and so it was, it was terrible. And it's really, really bad that um, when we had the, the right wing sad and rabid puppies uh, game, the Hugo awards a few years back, 
um, the Hugo administrators, which included Dave McCarty, yep. by the way, yep. said at the time, "Oh, we can't just we can't just disqualify these things. Our our, our hands our hands are tied. You know, we have to follow the rules." And so some of the same individuals who said, "Oh, we can't keep those those right wing um, those right wing slate nominees off the ballot because we have to follow the rules," in this case, they disqualified a whole bunch of works. They disqualified a whole bunch of works for being a slate, despite the fact that there was no rule to allow them to do so. And they also disqualified a bunch of works and people for possibly offending their Chinese hosts. Yeah. And so there was no justification, no no explanation, no excuse, and no defense uh, for what the Hugo administrators have done in 2023. Yeah. And I'm just appalled by the whole situation. Well, and I was struck by the irony. And you you mentioned you know 2015 especially being being where a lot of this stuff happened on mm-hmm. on the puppies. And you're right, you know, from a from a rules and, and, and regulatory standpoint, maybe they can't eliminate a slate or, or, or render things ineligible. But that was the year that no award won a lot of categories. So they essentially censored it anyway. I mean, I mean, one, well, could, one could make that argument that said, well, we're just not going to give anybody an award. So you're effectively removing okay, it. Yeah, anyway. but, but the thing is, the thing is, is that the Hugo administrators said, our hands are tied. These things got the most nominations. We have to put them on the ballot. Right. And then the voters responded to the ballot they were handed by saying, OK, all of these things we consider illegitimate. Therefore, we won't give any of them an award. OK, so that was the administrators followed the rules, even though they didn't want to. And then the voters did what they could within the rules. Yeah in order to punish the people who had gamed the system following the rules in bad faith. Okay, the puppies the puppies obeyed the letter of the law and completely violated the spirit. In this case, many of the same administrators decided to ignore that precedent and say, we're going to make decisions for what we believe to be the organization's greater good by hand-removing things from the ballot even though there was no rule that allowed them to do so. Yeah. So same well, people, different decisions. The other, the other thing that I'm, that I'm finding, and I can't, I can't, I think, um, I think the guys over at uh, file 770 report on this as well, but the Chinese counterparts, um, the, the Chinese members of the administrators in the Hugo committee were removing Chinese publications because you had the stuff, you know, the Western publications that were affected by things that McCarty and them did. And then you had the stuff that was published in China that was nominated. Also, a number of those works getting removed from the ballots on on that side of things. So this is even even bigger than just what happened in, in with the Western, you know, the American and Canadian members of the committee. Yeah. Now, what you're what you're saying doesn't line up with my understanding of the situation, but I admit that my understanding of the situation is limited. My understanding is that it was the Western Hugo administrators who eliminated some works and people for being possibly politically incorrect. Right. And also eliminated a group of Chinese nominations, a group of Chinese nominations because they perceived them to be a slate. Yeah. My understanding is, is that that was done by the Western administrators. But if it was, in fact, done by the Chinese administrators, then my understanding is incorrect. 
Well, and I've I've read so many different articles on this thing. It's kind of hard to to keep track of who's who's doing what. It's, yeah, it's well, and the, and the whole thing's been you know been kept under a tight lid. The only reason we have as much information as we do is because one or two brave people stepped forward and leaked information, which you know could be considered confidential. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, sometimes the whistle must be blown. Well, and I and I have a feeling that we haven't heard all of the shoes drop on this thing yet. So, no, and I suspect we never will. Yeah. So, so let's um, let's talk about your stuff because you've you've won you've won these awards. You've been nominated for different things, but now you've got this stuff that's out. Where do you want to start? You want to start with Kuiper Belt Job, or you want to start with Arabella, or something else? Okay. Um, let's start. Let's start with Arabella because I think what can be said about the Arabella books is is fairly contained. Um, so. Uh, Arabella of Mars uh, came out in 2016. Um, it won. It was nominated for four major awards um, and won two of them. Um, it won the. It, it. Let's see. It did not win. It would. It did not win the Endeavor Award, but it did win uh, the Andre Norton Award, um, which at the time I won it was considered not a nebula, uh, but since has been reincorporated into the nebulas. Mm -hmm. So. I'm a, I'm a retroactive Nebula winner, which is not the same as being a retro Hugo winner. Um, so yeah, so Arabella of Mars won the, won the Nebula and also, um, and also it was nominated for, I think two YA awards and two uh, adult awards and won one of each. Um, and then uh, that book was followed by two sequels, uh, Arabella and the Battle of Venus and Arabella the Traitor of Mars. Um, those came out from Tor in 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, and, and they did, they did quite well. Um, but they did not earn out. Now, uh, earning out means that you, uh, when you sell a book to a traditional publisher, they give you an advance. Mm -hmm. I got a very nice advance for those books. Um, and then, uh, what they do is every, every time you sell a copy, uh, you get a certain amount of royalties, you know, for a book like this, it's something in the vicinity of a buck um, uh, per copy. Um, and then they put those royalties in a pot. And if the pot rises to the point of equaling your advance, then they start sending you royalty checks. Right. Um, that's why it's called an advance. It's an advance on royalties. Um, the first book more than earned out, uh, which means that it earned more in royalties than the advance for which it had paid. But Tor, like most publishers these days, practices what is called basket accounting, which means that the three books as an aggregate um, have to earn out before you start getting royalty checks. Gotcha. So the first book more than earned out. Um, the second one did not do quite so well. And the third one didn't do well at all. This is fairly typical for series is that the first book, even, you know, even uh, the uh, Game of Thrones, you know, the first book is still selling wildly more than the second, which sells more than the third and so on. Right. Um, but still, the three books considered as an aggregate did not quite earn out. Um, and so I think because of that and also because of general a general feeling by the publisher that steampunk wasn't paying off uh, the way that they had hoped when they bought the books originally. Um, they decided not to, um, not to accept my offer of a further series. Uh, mm -hmm. I did finish up this. I did finish up the story of Arabella in three books. Um, but when, when the third book was turned in, I said, okay, I could write you um, stories of a different character in the same universe. Uh, I could write you uh different steampunkish universe 
or I could write you something completely different. Um, and they looked at what I had to offer and they said, um, no, thank you. We're not interested in any of those. Huh. Um, so after a while, um, the royalties, the, the, the sales of the book, even though it did not earn out, it was still continuing to sell. Um, but the sales were going down and down and down. Um, and I, I happened to be talking with a friend of mine who said, oh, hey, I just got the rights back on one of my early novels. And I said, oh, really? How does that work? And said, well, there's a clause in your contract that says that if it doesn't have a certain amount of sales, you can request the rights back. Um, so I looked at my royalty statements and as it happened, I had just passed the point. I had just that, like that month passed the point of the sales had dropped to the point that I could request the rights back. Um, so I did. Um, and, uh, and when I got the rights back, uh, my agent, uh, very, very kindly shopped them around and found, uh, open road media, uh, open road is a company that is basically specializing in bringing books that did not achieve their best potential on their first release, bringing them back into print. Um, so open road, uh, did, did make me an offer and I accepted it. And so uh, they have now brought out the Arabella books with magnificent new covers. Yeah, they're very uh, impressive. People. It's very impressive artwork here. Yeah, I love the covers. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the tour covers as well. Um, but these new covers are amazing in a very different way. Um, they are reminiscent of um, they're reminiscent of Leviathan uh, by Scott Westerfeld, which is a big YA bestseller. Right. Um, and another thing that they're doing is Tor brought the books out as adult. Uh, Open Road is bringing them out as YA. So they're more YA-focused covers. Um, the, the marketing text is more YA-focused. Uh, so this is a chance for, it, for the books to find a whole new market. Another really important thing to me uh, from Open Road is that um, they, are, they have world English rights. Tor only ever bought North American uh, yeah. English rights, which meant that the Arabella books were only available outside of North America as either uh, imported hard copies. Uh, the ebooks weren't available at all. You may or may not know that ebook licensing is uh, restricted by region. Right. So if you were in if you were in the UK or Australia, you couldn't buy the Arabella books as ebooks. Now you can. Um, so this is an opportunity for people in people in English speaking countries outside of North America to buy these books as ebooks for the first time, and I'm excited about that. Well, and it's funny, I, I, watched, I saw uh, Michael Stackpole uh, posted something over on Twitter this morning, uh, the fact that people were still enjoying his X-Wing books in the Star Wars universe. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, yeah, that's great. Well, let's get them translated into other languages. And I, I started looking things up. And the, the top five languages in the, in the world, you know, you have English, and then you have Mandarin, and then you have Hindi. And then you mm -hmm. have Spanish, and then you have French, which I thought was really mm -hmm. interesting that French was in the top five. But uh, it it almost makes sense now from a standpoint of, of worldwide rights that you would start thinking ahead of time, okay, well, if I sell, I'm selling the English, I should also be thinking about translations into at least these other four languages. Have, has there been discussion with Open Road about doing that? Um. Open Road only bought the English rights. Okay. Um, selling the 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 foreign language rights um, belong to me because they've never been exploited, with the exception of Czech. Um, Arabella of Mars did sell to a Czech publisher. So the way that the way that translations work is um, in the traditional publishing world, generally speaking, um, 
you or your, in my case, your agent will offer the book to publishers in other countries saying, hey, won't you please buy this book from us and translate it? Um, so my my agent, I have, a, I have a, I love my agent, Paul Lucas at Janklo and Nesbitt. Um, Janklo and Nesbitt is by some measures the world's largest uh, literary agency. And so they have a whole foreign rights department. Uh, so they have been they have been working to try to get uh, foreign publishers interested in the book. So ch the Czech uh, Czech publisher was the only one to buy Arabella in the first place. Uh, I hold out hope that one of those other languages may find some interest. But really, it is up to the foreign publisher to decide to buy the right and to buy the rights to the book, and then the foreign publisher. Uh, performs the translation and holds the copyright on the translated version of the book yeah yeah so it's not up to me uh whether arabella is translated into other languages it's really up to the publishers in those other countries to decide to buy it uh, it's just like selling movie rights you know you can't just say i'm going to have my book made into a movie <laughs> right. you need to yeah. find somebody who actually has the has the resources to make a movie Ooh. to say i like this book a lot and i'm going to i'm going to buy the rights to it and make it into a movie so it's the same with foreign rights yeah well and and it helps to have an agent that's that's willing to go through that that rigmarole to try to sell them because if you're looking at region by region by region for every every different translation every different language that's a that's a completely different sales pitch every single time you go out there depending on the language yep. and and the country you're going into yep. and that is why my agent has a whole my agency has a whole foreign rights department yeah um, they also have a media rights department they also have um you know they've got a whole staff of people whose job is to be in contact with the with the movie makers in in hollywood and other countries uh trying to put the book in front of them in hopes that they will buy so, so I imagine that someplace, somewhere over in Hollywood, they're pitching Millie Bobby Brown as Arabella or something. <laughs> I did get, I did get a little bit of money um, when Arabella first came out. Um, I got some nibbles from yeah. Hollywood. Um, I had somebody who gave me, I think it was a thousand dollars for the right to shop it around to studios. So this was a, this was an independent production company that said. Um, we want to license the right to this book. We will take it around to studios. And if any of them actually say, yes, we like this idea, we're going to make it into a TV show. Um, then at that point we would negotiate with the studio for the rights. Yeah. But the production company said, we like this, we like this idea. And so they shopped it around and didn't get any bites, but I did get, I did get a couple thousand dollars for that. And that is, that is how these things work. Uh, typically, when you're dealing with media stuff, and again, I'm talking about the traditional publishing realm. I don't know. I don't know how self-publishing works with movie rights, um, but in the traditional publishing realm, you might get a little bit of money for what's called an option right. on the book. Yeah, and if the if the company you know they'll buy the rights to the book to hang onto it for a while and research whether or not they want to actually make a movie out of it, and if they actually do decide to do so, then they will actually buy the rights. And that's when they back up the dump trucks full of cash to your house. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, in this day and age, you've got Bob Iger sitting there saying, we're going to do sequels and, and franchises. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are kind of shaking their head at this because it's, it would seem to be that Hollywood needs to kind of expand their reach a little bit in terms of the kind of things that they're making. So, you know, these these two hundred and fifty, three hundred million dollar movies need to be whittled down a little bit and maybe you need to do more that are in the seventy five, eighty, hundred million dollar range. I mean, 
we're seeing Madam Web, for example, Sony made it for $80 million. And this uh, uh, this other one, uh, Argyle, was only was you know its budget was a hundred million. I know Apple paid two hundred for it, but the the actual production budget was a hundred million. So mm-hmm. it can be done. And if you're doing things that are in like say the steampunk space or the fantasy space or the science fiction space, you can still do it on a budget. I mean, look at look Godzilla minus one. Ten million dollars yeah. is a total budget. Yeah. So I and would think. It would be smart if I'm if I'm in Hollywood, if I'm an executive, I would be looking for that next thing that's not necessarily a franchise, at least yet. You know, I mean, you can, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, all of these different things that have the recognizable names. There needs to be some fresh blood, as it were, some some new stuff, because, you know, some fatigue, I think, is setting in on a lot of these franchises that are getting a little long in the tooth, wouldn't you think? Well, you know, it's not up to us to make these decisions. Obviously, the people who control the money want the people who have large amounts of money want to want to put that money on a safe bet. Um, And that safe bet um, is perceived right now to be more of the same in some fashion. Everybody wants, you know, I mean, Hollywood and and the publishing companies are owned by bean counters now. Um, And, and, you know, it's been a long time since any of these things were controlled by people who actually cared about the art. And so what they do is they say, this thing over here made a whole bunch of money. We want something exactly like that. Uh, You can't make it, it, you know, but a a novel is not a can of beans. You can't turn out another one that's exactly the same as the other one because that's not what people want out of novels. They want a novel that's going to be different from, you, you know, you can't, you're not going to sell, you know, if if I if I bought novel X and I enjoyed it, I could read it again, but I'm not going to buy it again. Yeah. Right. So um, so what we have to do when you're dealing with creative products like novels and movies, the new ones have to be different from the old ones. But the people with the people with the capital say we want it to be as as much as possible, exactly like the old thing so that we will sell as many copies as the old thing. They don't seem to understand that making something that is exactly like the old thing isn't going to sell any more copies than buying the old thing again. So they're they're trying to they're trying to skate that that penumbra between too similar and not similar enough. And nobody's willing to take a risk on trying something that's completely new and different, even yeah. if it even if it could be done more cheaply. Well, and I yeah. think there's an opportunity there for indie creators, especially in the in the film space, because you know, the last few years. We've seen a lot of crowdfunding projects for comic books and some stuff for for RPG, you know, for role-playing games and board games and, and some video games, uh, but not so much for uh, independent film productions. You know, short films, maybe, fan films and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But nobody's really sitting in there and saying, okay, I want to raise $100,000 to make a, make a feature film. And you could you could have some opportunity there, I would think, where you could develop a production based off of a book or based off a comic book or, or wherever and and have that crowdfunding space uh, that hasn't really been tapped yet. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's easy for you and I to say that. I mean, we can also say that 
um, you know, they ought to pass thus and such a law or um, my favorite sports ball team ought to trade thus and such a player. (laughs) But just because just because the fans are saying that thus and such player ought to be traded away doesn't mean that the people who actually sign the checks agree. Yeah. And if the people who actually sign the checks don't agree, then the check doesn't get signed. That is that is how this this messed up world of ours works right now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for all that that we understand that the bean counters are running Hollywood, it seems like fans are a little bit more savvy to it now. Mm-hmm. Some and and you're getting you're starting to get a little bit of pushback and say we don't want yeah. we don't want this thing anymore. We want something else. Do give us yeah, something else. I agree. So I agree that we're seeing pushback. Um, but capital is inherently conservative. Yeah. So it's going to take a lot of push to move the needle. And, and, and the thing is, it will it will happen, uh, as um, as Ursula Le Guin says. You know, capitalism seems to be entrenched and immovable, but so did the divine right of kings, and we yeah. eventually got rid of that. So, steam engine time may come. There's definitely a there's whenever something is entrenched and starts to become tiresome, there's an opportunity for something new to come along. Yeah. But it's a difficult time for independence right now. It's very difficult. I was having a lovely conversation just yesterday with an independent musician uh, bemoaning the fact that there hasn't really been any new and different music in this century. I mean, you look back, you know, think about how much grunge differed from what had come before, how much rap differed from what had come before, how much rock differed from what had come come before. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't seen that kind of stuff right now. Everybody, even the independents, is trying to do the same thing as everybody else is doing. Um, and, you know, and that's why AI, I think, is is so, you know, is, is such a significant factor uh, and such a significant threat because AI it gives us the opportunity to turn out a crappy third generation Xerox of exactly the same thing at almost no cost. And a lot of people are saying, you know, I bet people will pay a little bit for a crappy third generation Xerox that doesn't cost me anything at all. So I will flood the zone with crap. And even if most people don't want it, enough people will buy it. And the, the cost of producing it is so low that if even a few people buy it, then I'll still make money. And so that's why we're getting our we're getting our zones, our you know, the our internets, our internet searches, um, and and our, our you know fiction. Look at look at what's happening to uh, magazines like Clark, like Clark's World. Uh, they're getting flooded with AI generated short stories that are yeah. absolutely worthless. But that but the people who are sending them in, it doesn't cost them anything to generate those stories. So there's there's no reason for them to not again flood the zone to to not to not fill up the input cues of the magazines with crappy worthless machine generated short stories making it a lot harder for the magazines to do their work because they have to look at each one in order to reject it. Yeah. Well, and, and you had a blog post on your site about this the other day about going through search engines and, and fact finding and, 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 and ending up with stuff that appears to have been generated by AI and is not factually accurate. And yeah, because, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, because that's how everything works in technology. Right. But I agree with you. I think I think well, I think I think the AI is is a lot of people are seeing it as 
a useful tool, uh, and not necessarily in the creative space, but say I wanted to translate my 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 article into Spanish. You know, I don't know anybody that speaks Spanish. So I just run it through the generator, or mm-hmm. or something like that. Or if you're doing data analytics, how many people how many people answered this survey question X, and how many people answered Blue Thirty Two? You know, those kind of things. You could do you could yeah. run AI machines for that kind of stuff all the time. Right. But, the problem. Well, there's. I mean, there's artificial intelligence. Like, for example, the kind of artificial intelligence, the fuzzy logic, um, that makes camera autofocus much better than it was 30 yeah. years ago. Okay, that's an application of AI that is, I think, useful and plausible. Uh, there's also the kind of AI that auto predicts what the next word you're going to type is, and saves you keystrokes. Okay, that's that's a form of artificial intelligence that I think is is valuable because there's still a human being at the controls. But this new generative AI, the LLMs and DAL-E's, yeah. the problem with generative AI is that by design, it cannot produce factual output. Generative AI produces output that looks like the input. It's not necessarily... It, like, for example, um, you know, generative AI may produce, you say, you say, draw me a picture of a monkey. Okay. It'll draw a monkey with five arms because generative AI doesn't know anything. Yeah. It only knows that I'm, I, it's, it's kind of like, it literally is almost the same thing as doing a Google image search on your prompt string and then kind of mashing all those images together. And so if you mash all those images together, you're not necessarily going to get something that actually looks like a real monkey. You're going to look like something that's a mashed together image of a bunch of things that were tagged monkey. Yep. And therefore, this is why AI can't get the number of fingers on the hand right. And this is why textual AIs can't get the facts right. It produces text that is plausible and sounds confident, but there is absolutely no mechanism inside these LLMs to assess or, uh, or quality check the facts because these LLMs do not know anything about facts. They only know what word is likely to come next. So it has the form of an essay, but there is no connection between the output of these textual LLMs and the actual facts. So they're always going to hallucinate. And this is an engineering problem. This is built into their design. Well, besides that, you also have a, a programming bias because yeah, I've seen a number of examples where people go to ChatGPT, for example, and they say, tell me a joke about fill in the blank, and it'll tell a joke about fill in the blank. Now tell me a joke about the opposite of fill in the blank. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't do that because, you know, cultural sensitivity or whatever. It was like, hang on, wait a minute. If you can tell a joke about one group and not another, that that shows a bias that is inherent in the programming, which which is a flaw to me, because what other outputs are going to be impacted by the bias that's programmed into it, whether it's deliberate well, or there's not? A lot of, yeah, there's a lot of that in, in anything having to do with automation, like, yeah. like the fact that those autofocus cameras can't focus properly on black people. You know, they weren't designed for that. They were designed by people who were only thinking that white people are human, right? And so the same thing, what you're seeing in those, if an LLM says, I can't do that, that's because the LLM said something horribly racist at some point and somebody said, oh, we can't let them do that. Let's, right. let's, let's, put, in, let's put in a governor to keep that particular thing from happening. But because 
the output of an LLM cannot be predicted. And that's one of the reasons they're so dangerous is it's not possible to do quality assurance on the output of LLMs because it's not deterministic, yeah, right? Right. You could get different outputs for the same input. That's part of the design. So because the because the output of the LLM is not deterministic, they can't actually say we're not going to, you know, we're not going to let this this LLM be racist because the LLM does not understand what race is. What we can do is we can put a post filter on the output saying, oh my God, it said something awful. We'll just tell the user that, that we can't do that. Yeah. But there are other ways of saying the same thing. For example, instead of saying something bad about one racial group, you say something good about the other racial group that the people that designed the post filters, the governors did not think about then that means it passes the filter and it winds up on the user's screen. Yeah. So designing, you know, we, we've been trying to write automated filters to detect racism. People at Facebook and Twitter, I mean, I mean, I think they've both given up on it, but there was a time when Facebook, Twitter, and other social media were trying to automatically filter out objectionable material, and you just can't do it. You know, no, the human human language is such a big topic that you can't, write an automated filter that will catch the bad stuff and let the good stuff pass. It is just, it's, it's infeasible with um, not only with today's technology, but I believe with foreseeable technology. I also personally believe that having a self-driving car that can play nice with human drivers <laughs> is actually not only impossible with today's technology, I think it might be impossible. I mean, certainly for the next hundred years, yeah. I cannot imagine that there's going to be a way that automated drivers will be able to cope with the completely random and stupid behavior of human drivers. Right. If every car on the road was automated, great. But as long as the automated cars have to be in the same environment with human beings, and this, of course, includes pedestrians, bicyclists, um, and, and other drivers, yeah. uh, as long as they have to deal with other human beings, it, you're going to get horrible accidents. Well, and I think the other thing, too, is, you know, you talk about, you know, we go back to the Hugos with the censoring of the Hugos. And if you have this situation where these various different organizations and business entities and online social medias or whatnot are trying to automatically censor, you know, filter out the bad stuff. Well, the the problem with that is that the people who have the bad thinking, the racism or the or the or the you know the 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 terrible behaviors don't get exposed for being terrible people. And you 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 kind of get this masking over everything that says things are maybe better than they actually are. Now to me social media is a is a you know burning cesspool of of it's a tire anyway mm -hmm. but um it's it's one of those things where who who decides if you do yeah. even it, be able if you're able to 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 build this filter who decides what's bad right you know well and that's a big problem i i'm not i hear you i hear you making the argument that we have to let the bad stuff out there so that people will see it and and you know and you have to, we have to let we have to publish the bad stuff so that people will see it and 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 uh, and and denigrate it. I don't buy that argument um, because the problem is is that once something is published, it has an influence. Um, no so allowing allowing 
negative, racist, unhuman uh, opinions to be published freely in the same uh, in the same marketplace of ideas as everything else gives them more credence and support. Um, and so I think there has to be some kind of control. Um, well, and except, I don't think that allowing the I, I don't think that having the individual users filter is a, really a solution. But having having the ability to push back on those things, I mean, we've got you know, Twi Twitter has community notes, for example. You've got all of these different all these different ways, uh, you know, the ratio, as it were, where mm -hmm. people can look at something and then say, "How can you say so something so stupid?" And all you know, every response all the way through the thread is, "This is a bad take." So there's a there's a, an opportunity there. If somebody says something horribly irresponsibly stupid, they get called out on it through through the through the discussion threads, and mm -hmm. it does it's not perfect. It's it's yeah. not a great system. I mean, personally, I I would be fine if all of social media died in the heat death of the universe tomorrow. Yeah. But you know, there's there's going to be those including this video cast. Yeah, well, sure, any of it. I mean, yeah. I'm but, I'm good um, for all okay. of it. I you know, I mean, I mean, okay. Now this is this is just this is just my opinion. Um, but the problem with um, let the you know publish the bad stuff and let the commenters take it down is you know that most people don't read past the headline, and certainly most people don't read past the headnote. They don't go they don't go in and read those community notes. Right. Let me give you a specific example, and this might be the very blog post to which you referred earlier. Is that um, I was looking for some information on, uh, particularly I was looking at the question of, can you use salt to put out a kitchen fire? Yeah. That's, okay. That's the one. So okay, right. So I so I I found a page that that seemed to answer the question, and I was reading it, and it seemed to be making sense. It said a lot of things that that made perfect sense. And then I encountered a sentence that said, salt puts out fires because salt contains water and the water is released by the heat and that puts out the fire. And I go, that's not even that that is so far off. And so having had my having having had that realization that there was one bad fact in the essay, I read it more carefully and I go, oh, well, this is a I produce garbage. It's it's rambling. It's too long. It says the same thing a couple different ways. Sometimes it says the same thing in a couple different ways that are not that, that are even contradictory to each other. These are all signs that it was produced by AI. And suddenly I realized that this I run into one thing that was so wrong that it triggered my filters. Mm -hmm. But everything that I had read up until that point, I had accepted. And so now I realized that I had ideas from that article were in my head. And the human brain is not a, you know, it's not an editable, it's not an editable medium, right? I can't go back and say, oh, okay, I need to unaccept everything that I read in this article up until this point. You know, I might not even remember which of the facts that are in my head now are ones that had come from that article. So my brain was poisoned by reading that article, even though at some point during the reading of it, I realized that it was crap. Yeah. And so that happens on a much bigger scale when you allow bad and stupid ideas to be published along with the good ideas. Once upon a time, there was such a thing as an editor um, that you would read, you would get your news from a newspaper 
that was written by reporters, edited by editors, and published by publishers. And those were three places in the in the in the the stream between the vast sea of undifferentiated information and my eyeballs. Right. There were three human beings between me and that vast sea that could say this piece of information that has crossed my desk is crap. I will not publish it. Okay. So it used to be that you needed that you needed to have you needed to have a monk to hand copy something. You know, it, nobody would go to the work of hand copying something unless they really believed it. Okay. Right. So now with more and more automation in the system, the crap that is out there in the world, the bad ideas, the, the incorrect information, the lies, the propaganda, there's less and less in the way of human filters between my eyeballs and that crap. So a lot more of that stuff is making its way into my precious and tender brain. <laughs> and I don't, I, I, I want to keep that from happening. Um, and what that means is having more human beings in the loop. The problem is human beings aren't scalable. Yeah. So there's a lot of economic pressure to try to get those human beings out of there and get the crap to the user more quickly, more cheaply. And the people who are pushing that crap don't mind as long as they make a cut off the ads that are attached to it. Well, the other aspect of that, too, is if you introduce, because you've got, you know, you talk about checking and make sure that things are accurate. You have all of these different fact checkers that are out there now and, and all sorts of information out there that about 90% of them are biased in some way, left or right. And it's, it's you, you almost can't trust the fact checkers who are no, checking the facts. I mean, well, how, we don't where, even, where we, do you, where well, do you get to the point where any trust is possible at all. I don't, I, blame, I don't think I you can. Newt Gingrich, actually. I think, I think it was, it was the Reagan Republicans and particularly Newt Gingrich who began publishing what we would today call alternative facts and, and dehumanizing their political opposition. Um, that's when this current partisanship started. Um, and right now it's gotten to the point that, you know, this country, and certainly a lot of other countries, although not every country, is kind of divided into two or more parallel universes with different facts. You know, and I don't know how we come back from that. Well, because it's not just but it's not it just but it's not just politics, David. It's everything. It, you know, everything is is filtered through a bias of some sort, whether it's political or ideological or whatever. I mean, you look at every yeah. every debate that happens online has some kind of uh, of a point of delineation where I'm on my side, you're on your side, and I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. And it doesn't even matter what the topic is. Well, everything is political. You know, you know, all politics is local and really all politics is personal. Yeah. And we have built a system where there's a whole complex of beliefs that's associated with um, that's associated with your political leanings. Um, you know, your political leanings will determine what kind of vehicle you drive, what kind of clothing you wear, which neighborhood you live in. Um, and the more factors get wrapped up in that ball of twine, the tighter it winds and, and the more closely, I mean, I mean, I can't even, I have, I have a, I have a, a, a baseball cap that I used to like. It happens to be red. I can't wear it anymore. Okay. And can you, I mean, I mean, how did we get to this point that you can't even wear a baseball caps if, if it's the wrong well, color? It's like we've turned the entire, the entire country into Crips and Bloods. Yeah, but you, you could wear the red cap. I mean, nobody is sitting there telling you you're not allowed to wear the red cap. You're, you're, you're saying that for yourself, I would imagine. I mean, nobody sat there and told you. I mean, there hasn't been any kind of a struggle session where they sat you down and did an intervention for a red ball cap. 
Have yeah. they? And this, this ties in with what I said before about how autocracy works. Autocracy works by putting people in fear of punishment, not because they actually will be punished, but you try to get, basically autocracy scales by distributing the, by distributing the work of enforcing the goals of the autocrat first to the autocrat's allies, and then eventually into the heads of the people who would otherwise oppose the autocrat. Yeah. So in this case, I think, I think that, you know, I don't want to wear this hat because it would indicate that I'm supporting an ideology that I do not support. So that is something that I have done within myself because I fear the possible consequences. And that's how autocracy works. What would be the consequences of wearing a red hat? I mean, I don't want to get too far afield from talking about your work, but what yeah. what what kind of consequences would you be worried about experiencing? It's like um, walking through a neighborhood in walking through your own neighborhood during election season. Why do we put out lawn signs? Mm. It's to show the preponderance of signs in this neighborhood indicate support for candidate A or candidate B. Sure. Okay. If I'm walking around and I see that, huh? Everybody in my everybody in my neighborhood seems to be all head up about this ballot measure that I had not heard of. You know, if I see if I see that my neighbors, people that I you know my my physical real world neighbors, people that I know and like and interact with fairly frequently, yeah. if I see a bunch of my neighbors are putting up a sign saying no on seven, okay, I go, huh? It seems that people are really are really excited about this measure seven. I'd better do some research, yeah. okay. So by wearing a red hat and going out in public, I'm saying, hey, look, that MAGA thing is pretty cool in this neighborhood. I don't want to send that message to the people around me. It, it, but is it a MAGA hat? It isn't, but it could be read as because it's become it's like wearing a brown shirt or, or giving or giving a, you know, giving a salute. You know, there was that whole thing a while ago where somebody at the Republican convention raised their hand like that. And there was this huge argument over, was that a Nazi salute or was it just a hand gesture? Yeah. And the fact that it was even a question is why it's worth debating. Well, I suppose, I mean, one could argue that somebody caught, you know, snapped the camera just at the right moment when the hand is in motion. So, I mean, again, and that goes back to trust and perception and what's presented as reality and what's presented as quote unquote truth right. in the and media. That, so, yeah. and that ties in with what I was saying before about how um, there used to be human beings mm -hmm. in the loop, right? And it's not that there was no bias, but that you could be clear as you were reading something what kind of bias was behind it. Yeah. You know, if you read the Wall Street Journal, you can be pretty sure that this is something that's going to be friendly to capitalism. If you're reading it in the, you know, the, Berkeley Times, you know, it's probably going to be something produced by hippies or ex-hippies, yeah. right? So it was pretty clear the bias that existed, and you could understand that bias and factor it into your own judgment about whether or not to accept this into your brain. Yeah. Okay. But these days, something I was just reading this morning is that a lot of what used to be trustworthy brands like Good Housekeeping and Forbes and uh, The Wirecutter, you know, these are publications that built up a reputation. In the case of popular science, that's a publication that's over 125 years old, yeah. right? I think it's like 150, okay? Popular science has a lot of cred. Popular science was bought up in 2020. They shut down the magazine, and now the, the, the website, popularscience.com, is now full of listicles 
and other stuff, which is making money off of affiliate links. Okay. So if you are looking for information on what are the, what are the 10 best Bluetooth speakers? Okay. And you find a, you find a page on popular science that, Oh, okay. Popular science. That's, that's, that's a reputable source. I'll read it. Right. And these days, these, these, these trustworthy names have been hollowed out. You know, they've been bought and replaced with advertising content, which is which has enough of the outward form of the old magazine that you read it and accept it. So you can't, so, you know, this, this is, as you say, a question of trust. And the system is making it harder for us to know even who to trust, never mind whether or not to trust it. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like the setup of a, of a new novel series, maybe. <laughs> you know, I... I don't want to write that book because I it, it doesn't make me happy. Well, I, I what, like to write, I like do, to write books that make me happy. You, you use AI, you use generative AI to write that book for you, and then and then you're basically making the case, but by the process itself. <laughs> look, look what it does. I don't know. Let's let's talk about the Kuiper Belt job for a second because this okay. is the one that came out okay. here uh, last. What was it? December, I think. November, November when this yeah. came. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So the Kuiper Belt job is a space opera caper novel. Um, it is described as a, is described by the publisher as a cross between Ocean's Eleven and The Expanse. Um, I personally describe it as a cross between Firefly and Leverage. Um, same idea, um, yeah. but um, but the thing about Firefly and Leverage that they both have that Ocean's Eleven. I mean, describing it as a cross between Ocean's Eleven and The Expanse is is a perfectly valid way of describing it. But I particularly use Firefly and The Expanse, uh, Firefly and Leverage, both of which are found family stories. Both of them okay. are about groups of people who who are who together form something greater than the whole. Um, and I mean, a part that's that's great, a, a whole that's greater than the parts. And so um, so that is that is what I'm focused on. I'm focused on human relationships. I'm focused on people in groups. It's the first time I've written an ensemble cast. Um, and, uh, and the, the way that I wrote it, the, the, the actual point of view characters that I used is every other chapter is written from the first person plural. It is written in the we perspective. We did this, we did that. It's kind of like, um, I don't know how familiar you are with point of view, but there's a there's something called an omniscient point of view, right? Where the reader can peer into the heads of all of the characters. Sure, and okay. it's written in a third person. He did this, she said that, they went there. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you you got your first person. He did this. Uh, you got your first. You sorry. Your first person. I did this. You got your third person. He or she did this. Yeah. Um, so uh, omniscient is omniscient books, and omniscient isn't really very popular. It was a lot more popular in the 1800s. But omniscient books are usually written in the third person, but it's a very close third person in that you can see what the characters are thinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the the uh, every other chapter in the Kuiper Belt job is written in a first person plural, which is kind of a, uh, if you could call it limited omniscient, it's big and it's small at the same time, right. in that you can see into the heads of the main characters, but you can't see into the heads of any of the other characters. So they're written from the perspective of we, because the group, the Cannibal Club, is they're like one person in seven bodies. Yeah. They've been working together so long. They trust each other. They finish each other's sentences. You know, might as well be one person in seven bodies. And this is the story of a group of people who are closer than family. The group was shattered. And now it's 10 years later, and they have to put themselves back together. So every other chapter is written in first person from one member of, of the gang. 
So we alternate between the gang's perspective in flashback and individual perspectives in the present day. Interesting. And there's a there's a trope that you'll find it's you know it's definitely in just about every caper story. Um, and I think the uh, kind of kind of the 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 um, the type specimen of this trope is the Wizard of Oz, in that you're putting the group together. You're putting together a group that is needed to solve the big problem at the end. Right. And you have to add them one by one and integrate them into uh, into a working team. So that's the model that I'm using here is the um, you have a gang uh, that 10 years later, things went wrong and, and the gang broke up. And now you have the son of the gang's leader, uh, a son who nobody knew existed up until now, pops up and says, dad's in jail. I'm putting the gang back together to break him out. And so chapter by chapter, you see him rebuilding the group until at the end they reform themselves into a new cannibal club mm -hmm. in order to confront the big problem. But the big problem is not what it had at first appeared. Um, so it's complicated. How much of a challenge was that to, to flip back and forth between perspectives? Because I, when you're, you're sitting here doing a, a group, you know, telling, telling a we narrator mm -hmm. as opposed to that, I don't know that I've ever seen that done in a book before. I mean, I it's mean it may have yeah. been, but you know, that's I have I have attempt I've I've challenged myself kind of absurdly. Um my first my first novel, I wrote four novels before selling Arabella. Um so my first unsold novel uh was told in alternating um alternating between um one there was two 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 first person viewpoint characters. Uh one of them uh, the chapters went like January, February, March, April, up through December. Right. Um, and the other was um, November 15th, November 17th, November 19th. So we were alternating back and forth between two. They, they were both going forward in time. It's not like um, I was I was kind of modeling this on Ian Banks wrote a book in which uh, every other chapter was going. You know, so one one stream was going forward in time. The other one was going backwards in time and they oh, can be right. and they converged at the end of the book. I was doing the same sort of thing, except they were both going forward. But one of them started later and didn't and wasn't moving as fast. So so the two timeline, the, the, the two I'm trying I'm trying to the two timelines kind of went like this. So sure. they both they both ended in the same place, but one of them started later. So one of them was giving you information that was still well in the future of the other. Um, okay. And the two, the two characters needed to, you, you know, they were also separated in space. So they needed to find each other. It was, it was a ridiculously complicated challenge that I set <laughs> myself. I feel that it succeeded, but the book did not sell. No. So I've pulled this kind of stunt before. Um, I have a, I have a short story called Titanium Mike Saves the Day um, that every section it's only it's a short story or maybe maybe a novel that i think it's a short every section of the story is from the perspective of a new character and they're going backwards in time until you find the origin of the thing that is um that is present from the beginning um and it should be a surprise if, if i did my job so i've pulled this kind of stunt this kind of stunt writing many times and sometimes i feel it succeeds sometimes not i think this one succeeded um but i will say that it came out from a small press so none of the big press editors thought that thought that it worked for them or and was it because of the structure was it because of the quality of the prose was it because oh this is too similar to something else that we published a little while ago right i can't tell from where i sit 
all I know is that it came out from who it came up from, and now, but now it's out in the world, and anybody who wants to can buy it. Well, the other thing that I've noticed, I was talking to an author last week. Her name's M.K. Love. She's a fantasy writer. She's got a new book out, Young. Um, but her book is coming from Little Brown, mm-hmm. which I thought was unusual. And she said that they're starting to look at genre fiction in ways they hadn't before. Cool. And you're talking about you know the smaller presses and, and the different imprints that maybe might not normally be a fit for science fiction fantasy, possibly opening up on some of this stuff. I mean, you know, Band's been around for a while. Tor's been doing it. Um, You've got Orbit books in the, I think they're in the UK, right? If I, if I remember right. They publish in the U S market as well. Those, those are the ones that you normally think of to, to start with when you're talking about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, I mean, I was, I was with a, I was in a, a Zoom meeting just this weekend of mid-career writers, and we were all bemoaning the fact that we don't know how to sell. We don't know what the publishers are buying. We don't know. We don't know what to write or, or how to pitch it. Um, and I think that the publishers are flailing as well. The publishers yeah. don't know don't know what's going to what's going to stick. Um, so everybody, the the publisher, the publishers, the writers, the editors, the the agents, we're all flailing trying to figure out where the market is going. Well, and, and it seems like some are striking out. We mentioned crowdfunding earlier. The guys over at Crazy 8 Press have done some stuff through Kickstarter, uh, publishing some anthologies, and uh, that's, that seems to have worked. They've done some different uh, pulp story collections over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's a, that's a possibility. You know, if you, you have your, your group in the zoom and say, well, let's just, let's, let's, let's put on a show in the barn and just go publish yeah. it ourselves as it were. I, I used mean, to, I used to be a member of a writer's cooperative, um, that had started out as a group blob and eventually a group blog. And eventually they said, you know, we've got, you know, this person over here knows how to do a cover. This person here knows something about marketing. You know, we should get together, pool our skills um, and become not just a not just a group blog, but actually a writers cooperative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's still going. Um, I I'm no longer a part of the group, um, but um, but it is it is still going and it's achieving some success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it did not it did not burn up the shelves the the way that the way that one might have hoped. And and that's the thing is, you can have Hugh Howey burst you know burst out of the gate with 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 his with um with wool uh, and have and you know have an amazing cultural phenomenon uh you can have game of thrones uh you can have um you can have Nora Jemison. you know there are going to be people that break out and become huge cultural phenomena and at this point that could come out of self pub it could come out of kickstarter mm-hmm. it could come out of a major studio um the the field is so crowded. I mean, sales of paper books are actually up. That's but, a good thing. Yeah, but the aggregate number of sales is up, but the number of titles is up even more, which means that any individual title, unless it's one of those mega bestsellers at the top of the um, of, right. of the hockey stick chart, of any individual book is not selling as many copies as it used to. So it's a difficult market for both writers and publishers and for readers. You know, finding the good stuff is hard. Yeah. Well, and and that's I think one of the advantages of the crowdfunding model is that the people, the people who have an interest in what kind of stories you tell, 
as long as they can find it, you have uh, you have a not necessarily a built-in market, but you have a niche audience that's right there, and is and and if you maybe only need a thousand of them paying five bucks a piece, mm-hmm. and you sell your book. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't depend on uh, market forces outside of a particular audience segment, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's demographic or, or occupation or, or whatever, you know, you can, you can kind of narrow down and, and focus on your niche and sit there and say, Hey, we have steampunk robot jocks in uh, feudal Japan and whatever kind mm-hmm. of story you're telling. And somebody's going to sit there and go, I I'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah. Give me your money. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you can do See, that. And, and, um, and then I you use AI for... to translate it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think, the, I think the trick, and this is something that I've been, I, I've been, I realized years ago and have been saying for a long time is as, uh, as an individual producer, whether you're, um, you know, a writer, a visual artist, musician, what have you, you have to figure out what's going to make you happy. Yeah. You have to actually look inside and figure out what do I need? Not what do I want? Not what do I think I want, but what will actually make me happy? Um, and sometimes the way to find that out is to do something and realize, huh, I did that and it worked out the way it was supposed to and it still didn't make me happy. I'll have to do something else differently. <laughs> um, and I call that the hidden victory condition. Uh, if you've ever played the game Illuminati, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, paper it, it's a it's a it's a tabletop game okay um and in illuminati each of the players um represents one of the one of the shadowy groups that controls the world and anybody can win the game by accumulating control over a hundred groups or a hundred million dollars in income okay but in addition each player pulls a card from the deck and doesn't show it to anybody with their hidden victory condition so for example um you know anybody can win the game with a hundred groups or a hundred million dollars but I might be able to win the game if I can control five left-wing groups, okay? And there's only so many left-wing groups in the game, so controlling five of them might be even harder than controlling 100 groups all told, okay? So every player in that game has their hidden victory condition, and you have to, as you're playing, you have to look, huh, that guy seems to be expending an awful lot of money, an awful lot of effort on controlling left-wing groups. Maybe that's his hidden victory condition. I need to try and block it. So this is a metaphor. So we all have our hidden victory conditions, right? right. I mean, anybody can be successful if you, you know, if you have a million seller and and a, and a, and, a, and a movie deal. But maybe that's not what it takes to make you happy. Maybe you know, one writer might one writer might be happy if I would be happy if I can make hundred thousand dollars off my book and i don't care if i find a hundred people to pay a thousand dollars each as long as i get the bucks yeah and another writer would say i don't care how much money i make as long as i get really good reviews and my book is on the shelf in in my local library okay uh and so you've got to find out you've got to figure out by looking at your own looking inside yourself what is it that's important to me hmm. and what's important to me is being read by a lot of people I want to have I want to have good reviews. I want to have award nominations. I want to have a lot of people read my book and and be pleased by it. And so that means that in order to achieve my hidden victory condition, I'm better off to have a traditional publisher ship a thousand copies of the book, of which I only get a buck each. And so I get I get and so I get a thousand bucks. If I was more focused on the money, I might say. 
Well, if I self-publish this book, I can get not $1 per copy, but $10 per copy that I get to keep. Yeah. And so therefore, if I can sell 200 copies, then I'll make $2,000 instead of the $1,000 I would have made from selling 1,000 copies. So as a self-publisher, I could sell one-fifth as many copies and make twice the money. Okay, If I were motivated by the money, and a lot of people are, then that would look like a good deal to me. But because I want to have a lot of readers, that isn't a good deal for me. And so that's why I'm traditionally published. Oh. But that is, that is the decision that I have made for myself based on my own priorities and my skill set and, and what I want out of life. Okay, Other people are going to have different priorities, different victory conditions, and will make a, difference, a different choice as to how they want to go about doing their work. Well, and that's and, perfectly relevant for them. And I wish you victory on all of this, all of these projects that are out there now, <laughs> sir. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to one. One of these days, I will have enough time that I can read all of the books that I have that are in my pile to review. Um, but I'll have to check these out. The Kuiper Belt Job is out now. Now, are the the new Arabella books are they available already? Or are they coming out? They are. They came out on February thirteenth. Okay. Uh, they're available wherever ebooks are sold uh, all around the English speaking world. Okay. And you can find out more davidlevine.com. Uh, he's also got a YouTube channel and uh, is on Blue Sky and Instagram. And we got links to all of these in our notes. David, we need to make sure that it's less than three years until uh, we do this again. <laughs> Sure. Last, I can the, I can put a note in my calendar. The last time we did this was August of 2020. I'm thinking that's too long in between visits. Uh, mm -hmm. I always enjoy having you on the show. It's yeah. it's good. Thank to you. Have. Thank you. Well, it seems like it seems like I come out whenever I publish a new novel. So well, I better get cracking. All right. I do, we'll I do, look forward to I'm it. working. I'm working on uh, the book that I'm working on right now, which I actually hope to finish up in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm calling it Vaudeville with Aliens. Uh, it takes place in 1910. Uh, my main characters are a couple of down-in-their-luck vaudevillians, and they meet a couple of strange guys from way out of town. And together <laughs> they will either make it big on Broadway or destroy the world. Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. I, that, Yeah, we'll definitely have to have you come back and talk about that. And cool. who knows, mate, you know, we'll put you on a, on a panel discussion at some point sometime too. We'll, we'll super, do that. super. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm right here, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm right, right here in this little box right here. here in the box. All right. David Levine, thanks very much for being here, sir. And uh, all of you stick around. We will be back to do more right after this. Don't go anywhere. Live from the bunker. We'll be right back on Sci-Fi for Me Radio. That's a huge question and one that I would rather not answer, but I'm going to answer it. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. I was just kind of noodling on this very idea, so it's funny you bring it up. Good question. That's a great question. I love this question. Yeah. That's a good question. Count on Sci-Fi for me to be there asking all of the questions. It's a really good question. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Sci-Fi for Me is about to take you on an incredible journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. Conventions and fandom. Previews and reviews of movies and television. Sci-Fi for Me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of Sci-Fi for Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009.
Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. We are live from the bunker. The show continues in the third hour here. Glad to have all of you with us. Let's go. It is time. If anybody wants to, let me let me just ask. I mean, does anybody even want to dial in on on today's show? Because if you do, I'll put the link in. If not, I can vamp for a couple of minutes and then we'll head out. Because Mrs. Boss and I have a date tonight. Do you know we have a date tonight, Mrs. Boss? Huh? I, you, I, I can't hear you through the music because there's a microphone over there. Yes, we have a date tonight. Yes, we have a date tonight. Mrs. Boss and I are going to go see Dune. Part two. Part two. All right. So how's everybody doing today? It's Tuesday. And, and you know, Tuesdays are normally my Mondays. I got to tell you, I am exhausted. We watched, uh, we watched Dune Part 1 last night after watching David Lynch's Dune on Sunday. Um, I'm about Duned out, I <laughs> Almost, it was like, well, wait a minute. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So the Dune press screenings are tonight. The um, the the uh, review embargo lifts. I think tomorrow afternoon. So uh, so there's that. But yeah, we've got uh, we've got Dune Part Two tonight. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. So uh, anyway, let us uh, let us kind of go around here. Let me look here at some stuff. Uh, yeah, Death Angel Shadow putting the Discord link there in the chat. Does anybody want to call in? You guys want to do anything or, or no, or maybe sounding kind of, sort of, maybe, sort of? If not, I've got, uh, I've got stuff that I've got to catch up on. Uh, and, and March 31st is coming up pretty, pretty quick, uh, for us. Well, March 23rd, March 23rd, our 15th anniversary for the for the show for the for the channel for the the website not our anniversary our anniversary is sometime in what june july august somewhere around there our our anniversary we've had one or two of them so far of course mrs boss not even listening to me right now Acknowledging the fact you can't remember it. I didn't say I couldn't remember it. <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, okay, so let's let's go ahead and do this. We'll go ahead and call it for the day. We'll 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 call a lid, as they say in certain in certain quarters. Um and then we will be back coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow. It's a special time tomorrow. We're going to have Mr. Harry Turtledove on the show tomorrow. And we're going to be talking about his new book, uh, Wages of Sin, which is uh, an alternate universe, alternate history book like he does, 
with uh, the HIV virus running rampant in 19th century Europe, uh, 19th century England. So that'll be interesting. So we'll be talking to him about that tomorrow. And then, <laughs> excuse me, then on Thursday, uh, Christopher, Rocchio, uh, Christopher Rocchio will be here. And then I think on Friday, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying trying to put together a panel to talk about the Hugo Awards on Friday. So, And we're learning more stuff. So as things come out, uh, we're getting more information about this, this debacle uh, over the, the eligibility of the, of the nominees. So, uh, so anyway, so there is that. Anyway, all right, that's, that's it for today. We'll go ahead and call it and uh, come back tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern. Those of you who want to be here with us live... You can join us, and we'll have all sorts of fun and frivolity, mayhem, and chaos. In the meantime, uh, go catch us over on the socials, the Discord, the newsletter, all of the different places there, all the different video platforms and whatnot. It looks like we are relatively solid above 2,500 now, so I think maybe next Monday... We'll do a 2500 celebratory stream or something. I don't know. And, and we'll, see. we'll see what happens. All right. That's it for us today. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Uh, take care. Stay safe. <clears throat> Remember, the politicians hate you. The media lies to you. And the AI is no good. And God has a plan for you. There are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2024, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.